Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering by St. Paul's United Methodist Church. So I want to begin today by announcing that this is the last time that I will publicly offer uh, you an opportunity to purchase one of these books by Michael Moorwood, um, Prayers for Progressive Christians. Uh, send me an email with your name and the address where you want the book sent. I think we're going to start sending those out this, uh, this coming week. And if you missed that webinar, you can go on the Ordinary Life website. And um, it's on the landing page, actually, right under Jackie Lewis. And um, you can re-listen to that webinar or listen to it uh, again. Mm -hmm. um, I want to also say that a month from today... Jackie Lewis will be here. I don't know where you got the picture you put on the landing page. The internets. The internet. Because your picture's better than mine. I thought it was a great picture of her. Oh, it's a great yeah. picture it of her. It reminded me of Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. Yeah. Maybe I'll, ha maybe I'll have that one next Sunday, mm -hmm. by next Sunday. Mm -hmm. So we attended a Richard Rohr conference year before last. And Jackie Lewis is one of the featured speakers, along with John Dominic Crossan and I, Richard Orr, of course, and I'm not now remembering who else. But she absolutely was amazing. Uh, Jackie Lewis is, Dr. Jackie Lewis, I should say, is um, one of the pastors at Middle Church in Manhattan. You can go on their website and see the kind of work that they do and that, that she does. She's a public theologian. She's been doing a uh, se seminar since the George Floyd shooting, an anti-racism uh, seminar. And she's going to be doing part of that for us. And the format will be as if we were meeting in person. We will gather on the internet for a Saturday morning session between, say, 9 and 11, 11.30. We'll take a break for lunch. We'll come back at one or two and do an afternoon session. And then Dr. Lewis will be here with us um, on Sunday morning during this time. That's a month from right now. The webinar is free, but you do need to register in order to get an invitational link uh, to the webinar. So that's that. You anything? No, no. announcements, no. You don't want to push our podcast? Oh, <laughs> we do this podcast weekly called In Between, and we've been pretty diligent about releasing it on Thursdays so that you can hear from us um, Thursdays and Sundays and dialogues that we have in preparing for this time as a way to connect with you guys and um, pretend like we're all together. <laughs> uh, you can find it on Apple Podcasts or on our website under the menu where the podcasts and weekly lectures are held. So go ahead and click on those and see what you think and let us know who we might get to seek to have our, on our podcasts. These Sunday morning times live stream do not come without an enormous amount of help from Olivia Watson, William Budge, Tim Leatherwood, John Watson, um, they all do their part to make sure that this happens. And Holly and I work during the week to come up with something. We're doing this crazy time we live in. Crazy time. Yeah. 
I keep thinking, well, any minute it's going to be different, but. I feel like I'm like watching my life and like in a year from now, I'm going to be telling my other self what this time was like. It just feels like a time out of time a bit and totally mundane and normal too. <laughs> if you want to contribute money, there is a uh, link on the, the collection plate. Well, the collection plate didn't <laughs> show up today. Sorry. But there is a link on the, on the Ordinary Life website that even has an instructional video prepared by Richard Wingfield about how you can do that. Yeah. So um, I want to say that no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I want to begin today by uh, quoting some words from Joan Chittister. Joan Chittister is a Benedictine nun. I have been privileged to hear her in person a couple of times. I have read numerous of her books. Uh, she is a socially engaged religious person. The stories about her uh, heroic work for social justice are really amazing. Um, I found this on the internet, mm. Sister Joan, then and now. And I want to give you a heads up. This is a longer than usual quote, but I think it says, by the way, today, both Holly and I are doing longer than usual stories and quotes, mm -hmm. but it's justified. This is the quote from Joan Chittister. The notion of the separation of church and state has been used repeatedly to justify the silence of the churches in the face of evil. When I go to church, I don't want to hear about politics, people say. I want to hear about religion. And so the separation of church and state becomes the separation of religion and life. What was intended by the early formers of the U.S. political culture to guard the country against the imposition of any single state religion so that all religions could function freely has become a gag order on the human soul. Religion has become a social club to which people go for the sake of personal satisfaction rather than a public struggle to find the good and walk in it. It's no longer acceptable in this country, consequently, for the prophet to call the conscience of the king. We live in a country as a result where multiple theories of finance and business and profit and social theory are admissible concerns in the debate on public policy, but where the notion that an action should be questioned, let alone rejected because it may disturb the social order or the principles of human decency, is met with both embarrassment and resistance. We have not been able, therefore, to raise the question in Congress of whether or not a nuclear strike force with first strike capability is a posture of morality of which we can abide. We've not been able to discuss whether homelessness is a social sin or a personal failing. We've not been able to consider whether or not abortion is against human rights or women's rights. We've not bothered to wonder whether the care of the elderly in this country even approximates the mandate to honor your father and your mother. What we discuss is how our national actions will or will not make us number one, not whether it is conscionable or 
to even think of being number one in a world where starvation has become a national reality around the globe. The concept of separation of church and state was clearly never meant to suppress human morality. On the contrary, it was obviously meant to unleash it from all sectors, in all places, at all levels, so that truth could be heard and truth rather than expedient served. To raise a voice now, however, in search of transcendent truth invites letters that tell you that you are a traitor to the country and a pariah on its rights. Sister Joan um, one time got involved in an action, a social justice action, and the bishop called her in and said, because of this action you have taken, I think it was about abortion rights, freedom of choice, he said, I'm going to have to ask you to leave. And she said, okay, I'm taking all my nuns with me. And he said, wait a minute, mm -hmm. <laughs> let's rethink, uh -huh. let's rethink yeah. this. But this, the, what I just read to you by Joan Chittister is the kind of conversation that prophets have always had with the constituency that they serve. And it's the kind of conversation that we want to enable in, in, and facilitate using the teachings of Jesus. We're going to talk more about that uh, next week. But what Chittister is doing is calling us away from the tendency most all organized religion in most all traditions has to soften the truth of the core of the religious teaching. Now, yes, I am aware that there is the tendency uh, in religion to be harsh and judgmental, that harshness or judgment is either directed at those within the religion for not living up to the moral code of that religion, or it's directed outward at those people that particular religious group sees as its enemies. Now, I hope you know that we have been using the teachings of Jesus. I think the teachings of Jesus have been entrusted to us, and now what we're trying to do is entrust ourselves to the teachings of Jesus. And we're using a part, well, we're going to do the whole Sermon on the Mount, but right now we're using those first nine verses in the fifth chapter of Matthew uh, called the Beatitudes as a way to help us confront the systemic racism in our country, as a way to encourage and embolden us to live through this time of pandemic and come out on the other side embodying different moral values that, that give us a new kind of country to live in. The beatitude that we're up to for today uh, is this one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I misspell that, this. Hunger and thirst. <laughs> this, for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I, your work, sorry. <laughs> and I love the way that Eugene Peterson translated it. You're blessed. When you've worked up a good appetite for God, he's food and drink and the best meal you will ever have. Mm. What the Greek word blessed in this uh, particular, what the Greek word for righteous in this particular beatitude actually means is justice. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what we want to talk about today. Yeah. Righteous means justice. Justice 
and the issue of power that can either contribute to or detract from justice is what this time is about today. And we're calling this time a justice that empowers everyone. Mm -hmm. So it, we can't move much further without acknowledging that we lost a giant in the justice world this weekend, yes. Ruth Ginsburg, and just that she stood so both humbly as well as powerfully in her lifelong commitment to justice and you know her the sort of two words that are equated with her are I dissent not because she thought it was great to dissent against her colleagues or to always be a contrarian but to say no we must push our definitions of what is right I think that that quote you just gave that she modified it because it was traditional for the justices when they dissented from an opinion of the other justices to say, I respectfully dissent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she said, I dissent. Right. So she showed us what, um, what power could look like in a really fierce and nonviolent way. Right. Yeah. Have yeah. you seen her movie? The I haven't. Shockingly, yeah, but you know, she's- You need to watch yeah, that. It's yeah. really, it's yeah. really powerful. So let's definitely, and, and you know, it's fitting that as a woman of the Jewish faith, she died um, Rosh Hashanah around this time of year, which is such a holy holiday. Um, make space for that. She did a lot in the world. Um, so to move on with our ideas of justice this week. Um, it's said that Matthew wrote for what we might call the upper middle class today. Before he heard of Jesus, he was actually in the top 15% of society. He was a scribe. And I wanna remind you of this picture that I drew a couple of weeks ago, where he fit exactly. He's right there in that sort of third tier of five percenters and he wrote and transcribed the laws which means that he, up, he helped uphold them to support the 10% of the population above him. So he was solidly in what today would be called the, the very upper middle class. So the problem that the upper class had with, with Jesus was that Jesus made God too accessible by sidestepping the rules. And Matthew, at first probably in dissent of what Jesus was saying, began to hear it differently. But he also translated the stories to be appeasing to that top 15%. He made them in the language that the upper middle class could understand and relate to. Peterson, of course, so it says, blessed are those who hunger for Jesus, that became blessed are those who are righteous or rule followers. When in fact, Jesus was, was not a rule follower. He in fact broke every social law that we can imagine. Peterson, of course, translates it to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, as Bill said, thus making God and justice synonymous. We can surmise that if God has once, if, if, if that is what we are holding as a metaphor for a minute, then his, those once are for justice. Thus, this is both a spiritual and social or political saying. Richard Rohr writes, to live a just life in this world is to have identified with the longings and hungers of the poor, the meek and those who weep. 
This identification and solidarity is already a profound form of social justice. He goes on to write that justice is both the midpoint and the finale of the Beatitudes. So justice appears more than any other quality in the Beatitudes and all these other things lead to creating a more just world. I feel like justice has become a kind of loaded political idea instead of just the right thing to do. <laughs> Social justice movements make people uncomfortable, especially those who sit pretty at the top tier of society. Uh, Me Too makes some men uncomfortable because it's got so many scrolling back into their lives to see, oh my gosh, have I been complicit? Have I done something that I could be held accountable for and not known it? Or have I known it and hidden it? Black Lives Matter makes some white folks uncomfortable because they're asking, well, what about all lives? But hear this, it's not saying black lives matter more. It's just black lives matter, period. And we live in a society where that has not historically been true. I believe these are the justice, some of the justice issues that we have to sort of take on and ask ourselves, are we making lives matter equally? Are we making lives matter, period, regardless of where they are in the social strata? To talk about justice, we first need to talk about its opposite, which is injustice. It means the violation of right, or of the rights of another. The easiest way for me to understand what is unjust is to ask, when I witness something harmful, would I feel okay if my kids were treated this way? The perception is that for justice to occur, those at the top lose something, be it power, prestige, or position. And frankly, I'm here to confirm that yes, those, if justice is actually achieved, those at the top, and I include myself among them, do in fact lose some power, prestige, and position, which renders us meek. From a place of humility, we can actually become better leaders. And for an earnest pursuit of justice is never without love. Cornell West says, in fact, that love is what just, sorry, justice is what love looks like in public. It is never without inclusivity and humility. So, um... You have one or two in there. Just as the word justice is a turnoff for people, mm -hmm. um, Richard Rohr says that if you advertise that you're going to give a talk or a seminar on peace and justice, nobody will come. <laughs> and I think that the word righteous is also a turnoff for people. You know any righteous people? Yeah. I mean, I can be righteous sometimes. Well, that's, the, that's not a good way of using that word, is it? <laughs> nope. No. Nope. I can also be righteous in good ways. <laughs> but the, you know, the notion of righteousness makes people just want to throw up, you mm -hmm. know, when you think about that. Mm -hmm. If you read through the entire set of Beatitudes, which is really easy to do because there are only nine of them, um, the word righteous appears twice. Uh, once here in this Beatitude that we're looking at today, and then it will show up again in a few verses where the beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Or again, as Peterson has it, you're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into the community of empowerment. Now, I think I've mentioned each week, and I 
probably will continue, that these Beatitudes are like a ladder. One builds on top of the other. And what that means is, as far as this particular teaching is concerned, is that in order to, to live a just life, we have to have identified with the longings and the hungers of the poor, those who either by choice or force live as who they are in God, no more, no less, because they don't have much else. Now, again, there are some people who choose to do this. Uh, Joan Chittister would be in that group. Richard Orr would be in that group. Thomas Merton would be in that group. Uh, the renunciates in the Buddhist and Hindu tradition would be in that group. Um, those who, who are in that group identify with those who weep because they are marginalized and, and outside the system. And just identifying, which you will hear Holly talk about later today, just being in proximity to these people is a huge form of social justice. Now, in this teaching, you're blessed when you've worked up an appetite for God. God is food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. Justice is both spiritual and it is social. So in this teaching, there is no separation of church and state. And next week, we're going to be even more explicit about, about that. These, these words, all of these teachings, were spoken to and in a social context that most of us cannot imagine, but they are absolutely so relevant for us. The dominant message in our culture given the worldview of capitalism, is this message. Don't be satisfied. I'm also thinking in light of all the pharmaceutical ads that I see on television, which I don't understand what they are about, <laughs> who they are directed toward. I once asked uh, my doctor if I could have his phone, home phone number. And he said, why? And I said, well, because I'm always asked on television to, to ask my doctor if so-and-so is good for me, and I never think to do it when I actually see you, so I just thought every time I hear one of those commercials, I'll call you up and I'll ask. Call you up and say. Would that be okay? And he said, no. No, it's HIPAA violation. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. I think the pharmaceutical ads are in some ways don't be human. <sighs> don't accept physical limitation as part of whatever yeah. anyway. I, I can't imagine going to... Uh, the, the two doctors that I have and say, oh, by the way, I think you ought to prescribe for me. That'd be like getting on an airplane and saying to the pilot, I really think <laughs> you should you drive this take way. this other yeah. direction. <laughs> yeah. But it is the primary uh, message of our civil religion, consumerism, don't be satisfied. Now, like many of you, during this shutdown period, I have done a fair amount of shopping on Amazon. I know all the arguments against that. And uh, I, I normally think that I don't do that when we were in our other lifetime before COVID. And I hope to be able to return to supporting brick and mortar stores when, this, when you're on the other side of this. But shopping Amazon does keep me from being exposed out there in the world. It's convenient and it's easy and it's seductive. I would say it's even addictive mm -hmm. because when I order something from Amazon, 
like yesterday, I had to order ink cartridges for my printer. And I placed the order and immediately heard from Amazon, if you like that, you would also like, and then there's another list of things, and they just show up at the bottom of my computer screen. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've actually fallen prey to those. Oh, I liked that book. Maybe I'll like this one. Oh, sure. And then I'm like, but this isn't a bad purchase. It's a book. And meanwhile, I have 280 books I haven't read. People who bought this also purchased. The message is, don't be satisfied with what you got. Get more. Now, eating that meal never really satisfied anyone. You'll hear from time to time about CEOs who have multi-millions of dollars compensation package. Where did that kind of thinking come from? That we need that much money, that much wealth. Uh, compensation that is literally beyond my ability to imagine. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, as I indicated earlier, the word righteous, you don't hear in a positive way except maybe um, inside of a church service where the Bible is being quoted. Outside, it's a derogatory phrase. Oh, he's such a righteous person. Only they probably wouldn't say person. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't say person. They wouldn't. No, they Another derogatory term. say something else. <laughs> yeah. I know a few righteous people, mm -hmm. and they don't live in the world I live in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I think about, say, a man that I really admire and love uh, a lot, Jim Finley, mm. who started his life as a, a novice in the monastery where Thomas Merton was, and for 15, 16 years, mm -hmm. he had nothing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Richard Rohr owns nothing. Now, he has access to a lot of stuff because he's been a figurehead and mm -hmm. been very successful mm -hmm. in his education program. But uh, all the money from his books goes to the program, doesn't come to him personally. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting because he may own nothing, but neither of those people are without, right? They're not without. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So how can we translate that sort of to homelessness, right? Who own nothing maybe, or except for what might be in a shopping cart or in a bag, but not be without. Uh, I think you're going to speak to that later. Oh, a tiny bit. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to live in this world and uh, to be either proximate to that. I love the way that you're going to talk about that or proximate to insane wealth. Either, either one without being affected in one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, the teaching of this beatitude is also don't be satisfied. Each one of these teachings in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus took from his Jewish tradition. And this one uh, that we're looking at today comes from the 107th Psalm, where the words there are, for God satisfied the thirsty and the hungry God fills with good things. So to be righteous in this sense, in the sense that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude, is to live both into and then out of our identity as who we are in sacred mystery. Now, what this means is living in what Buddhism called the four immeasurables of mind, 
which are love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, those four things over and over. We pray those, we live those four immeasurables. And equanimity means simply letting go, mm -hmm. giving up. So righteousness is about trusting that this way of living is a way to live into God's future. Mm -hmm. I, I just want to notice that you had trouble with the word thirsty today. I do. In several, several places, but that's all right. <laughs> um, I think about the many teachers that I've had, some living, some non-living, one sitting right next to me, some past and some present. And I draw upon the lessons that they have taught me about justice. One of my heroes is Brian Stevenson. And good Lord, if he's listening or if anyone he knows is listening, just thank you for your work. He is just an incredible soul, I think, from what I can tell from him on the outside. And he has many lessons on justice. One of them is grace, that we can't have justice without a certain amount of grace. In fact, I have a t-shirt from the Equal Justice Initiative, I've worn it in here before, that says everyone is better than the worst thing they've done. And this is kind of the motto he lives by. He believes in the fundamental goodness of people. And you know, he also believes in the fundamental goodness of systems and he keeps holding systems accountable to abide by goodness. So if we're honest, each of us have done at least one thing we're ashamed of, maybe more. Something that separated us from our true selves and from others, from our neighbors. The second thing that Brian Stevenson says about justice is we have to get proximate to it. So proximity, we have to get close to what is not just. We don't have to become poor or hungry or mistreated, but we cannot turn our backs on it and blame the victim. We must be willing to look at it in the face and see suffering for what it is. He says, today we have a legal system that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. Staying in jail, for example, for a petty crime because you can't afford bail or legal representation is not just. Being on death row for the final petty crime of a slew of petty crimes of stealing a pair of garden shears actually happens. When I read that story in the Christian Century and then followed up by looking it up on the internet, that's appalling. That's one of the most appalling stories I've heard in a long time. It is not unique. It's not unique. And I think that's the wake up call to justice. And Brian Stevenson works with people like that man all the time. And, you know, so, so because this man can't afford great legal uh, service, he is in jail on death row for stealing garden shears. I, I'm just going to leave that there. Okay. Say about it what you will. Um, allowing multitudes of children and grown folks who live on the streets or have insecure housing to go hungry, even though we have plenty of resources, as Bill just talked about, we have plenty of resources, but not equitably spreading them is not just. Being killed by a chokehold and an injection while vomiting and pleading, I'm just different. No, please, I can't breathe, is not just. I'm referring here to Elijah McLean, who was 23 when he died. He was killed by police in Denver. He played the guitar and the violin. 
and he often played the violin for stray cats because he felt it soothed them. He wore a knit mask over his face in the cold because he had sensitivity to cold. And he often, it was said in stories about him that he would walk down the street and swing his arms and sing. He was doing that when he got called suspicious and killed by three officers, four officers, I think. This behavior of swinging his arms and singing and walking down the street was what got him stopped. He was just different. Mm. So. He apologized to the police when he vomited. He had, he had committed no crime he or nothing? He committed no crime. There was no crime. Mm. Um, he apologized to the police when he vomited from being in a chokehold and, and just kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then he died. So I have a son who's 11, or almost 11. He'll be 11 on Tuesday. He reminds me a little bit of Elijah. He's kind of a different bird. He's long-limbed and skinny, and he's kind of a dreamer, rich interior life who loves frogs and maps and bounces around and swings his arms all the time. Like Elijah, he's a little different. And like him, he's brown. And like him, he's prone to these big erratic movements of swinging his arms and jumping as he walks down the street. And I, should I tell him to stop? Not to be himself, because being different is a risk to his well-being. It's not just to think someone's suspicious because they're different. We need to draw near to these things, to what these realities say about us, and to how we grapple with them, how we grope forward into a new way of being. And once we can get proximate, then Brian Stevenson says, we can begin to do the truth. We can begin to say what is true about injustice, both in the past and in the present. The Equal Justice Initiative, which is Stevenson's project that offers kind of another narrative of American history from the perspective of those who have been oppressed by slavery, Jim Crow laws, a lack of equal rights, malpractice in the justice system, and the like. The Peace and Justice Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama, is a pilgrimage that I think is kind of like required reading. Years of research and story gathering and finding underreported facts led to this labyrinthine monument that descends into a water wall. So you start on equal uh, visual plane with these beams that hang from the ceiling and you're, you're looking right at them. But as you gradually go down on a slope, the beams begin to hang higher and higher above your head and they're supposed to feel like bodies because that's what they represent. They have the names of those who have been lynched in counties around the country um, etched into them. And counties can claim a, a replica of these beams to have as a kind of homage or memory of people who have been lynched. There are so many that are unknown but in jars, soil is collected from the places where, under Jim Crow and slavery, bodies were burned, hung, or dismembered. Our racial history is just one of the truths that we need to grapple with. We cannot afford to be in denial of how it has shaped our past and continues to shape our present. The great evil of American slavery, Brian Stevenson says, wasn't involuntary servitude. It wasn't forced labor. It was this idea, this narrative that black folks aren't as good as white folks, that black folks aren't fully human. 
Black people aren't evolved. And that narrative created the ideology of white supremacy that has persisted. That was the true evil of American slavery. Brian Stevenson tells this really beautiful story, and I've heard him tell it um, in different formats that I've seen him speak in several times. It's a long story, um, but I think it's worth telling in his words. Mm -hmm. It's what is possible when we face what is true. We find each other in this kind of messy middle, under a tree with our knees and hands in the dirt. He says, we'd been doing this project where we have people go to lynching sites and have them collect soil from the lynching site and put it in a jar. In our museum, we have hundreds of these jars of soil that were collected from the sites, and I've seen them. They are both beautiful and haunting specimens because what you know is that the, the sort of memory of someone's body is in that soil. We have the name of the lynching victim, the date of the lynching, and it's been really powerful to give people an opportunity to do something tangible, to do something redemptive, to do something restorative. People come, they get a jar, and they go to these places with a memo and the jar in hand. We had a middle-aged black woman come to one of our events. She was nervous about going to a lynching site by herself. After the meeting, she was sort of fired up, so we gave her the jar, we gave her the memo. She went out to this lynching site, which was in a pretty remote area. As she approached, she got really nervous, but she did it anyway. She went to the place where the lynching took place and she was about to start digging when a truck drove by. There was a white man in the truck who slowed down and stared at her. The truck stopped and turned around and drove back by. And the man stared at her some more. Then she says the truck stopped. This big white guy gets out and starts walking towards her and she was very nervous. We tell people that you don't have to explain what you're doing. If you want to say you're just getting dirt for your garden, that's fine. And that's what she intended to do. But when this white man walked up to her and he said, what are you doing? She said, something got a hold of me. And I turned to that man and I said, I'm digging soil because this is where a black man was lynched in 1931. And I'm going to honor his life. She said she was so scared that she started digging really fast. The man stood there and he said, does that paper talk about the lynching? And she said, yes, it does. So he asks, can I read it? She gave the man the paper and he stood there reading while she dug. Then he put the paper down and stunned her by asking, would it be okay if I helped you? She told me that this white man got on his knees and she offered him the little trowel to dig the soil and he said, no, no, you use that. He started throwing his hands into the soil with force. His white hands were coated with black soil. He lifted and put the soil in the jar he kept throwing his hands back into the dirt and it moved her. She said the next thing she knew, she had tears running down her face. And he stopped and said, I'm so sorry I'm upsetting you. And she said, no, you're blessing me. Together, they kept putting the soil in the jar until it was almost full. She noticed toward the end that the man was slowing down and his shoulders were shaking. She turned and she looked. She saw he had tears running down his face now and she stopped. She put her hand on his shoulder and she says, are you all right? That's when the man said, no, I'm just so worried that it might've been my grandparents involved in lynching this man. They both sat there with tears running down their faces. At the end of it, he stood, up, he stood up 
And he says, I want to take a picture of you holding the jar. And she says, no, I want to take a picture of you holding the jar. So they both took pictures holding the jar together. And she brought this man back to EJI, and they put the jar on the exhibit together. Beautiful things like that don't always happen when you tell the truth about history, when you have to actually look for redemption and restoration, when you have every reason to be afraid and angry. But until we commit to some acts like that, until we tell the truth, we deny ourselves the beauty of redemption and the beauty of restoration. I love that story. That's a powerful story. Yeah. And, you know, as he says, that, that doesn't always happen. It doesn't always end up with two people sobbing together and coming into some place of grace. But it can happen, and we won't know until we participate in truth-telling. It was under your influence that I read the book, Just Mercy, and <clears throat> then we saw the film mm -hmm. when it came out. Yeah. And the film is very close to the book. The book has more yeah, stuff in it. the book has more, far more. The book has more yeah. stuff in it. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> what moved me as much as any, well, there were a lot of things that moved me, a lot of things. But what moved me as much as anything, it was at the end of the movie when they were doing the credits. Mm -hmm. It had a, a shot of all the people who had been attracted to Brian Stevenson's work for yeah. social justice. Yeah. And um, th there are people who do hunger for this. There are. And I do want to believe that more of us hunger for it than not. And so many of us don't know what to do. And so that's why I love his idea of you just get proximate. You just get proximate. I love that. Yeah. It's a great story. It I'm is a good story. I'm glad you told it. Yeah, it's long, so thanks for bearing <clears throat> with us. Yeah. <laughs> but um, this story told by Brian Stephen is an act of love, which again, as I said, Cornel West always says, justice is what love looks like in public. So this is both love and just. Love, then, is the extremely difficult realization that something other than oneself is real. Love and justice, spirit and society, these two must always be in conversation. We cannot change our justice systems without love. We cannot change our society without some idea of largeness beyond the self. When we can get to this place, I think, of restoration, we develop the incredible skill of empathy. That's what was happening in this story. Two folks who might never have crossed paths, who felt enormous empathy for one another. It's not looking on and hoping that someone gets out of a jam and saying, oh, I hope you're all right down there. It's being willing to place yourself shaking and sobbing next to somebody else's body and stand in solidarity with their suffering and therefore with their liberation. To hold that soil together and imagine that it can grow something new, something life-giving instead of life-taking. So this leads me to what I think is a fourth quality of justice, which is empathy and belonging. Getting proximate, telling the truth, lead to greater empathy and a greater sense of belonging. All of these are illustrated in the story I just told. There are two strands of belonging that I think are imperative to really wrestle with here. One strand is belonging to each other. Martin Buber, a German Jewish philosopher and mystic, wrote about a spiritual sense of belonging that he referred to as I Thou. You've talked about it in here before. I re recently read the book I Thou, and he had, there's a lot of poetry in his words, but essentially he, is, he makes a contrast between an I It 
stance on life, an I, you stance on life, and an I, thou. The holiness of the word thou is really what he's saying is that holiness that we need to see in each other. So he wrote I, thou, as he witnessed the rise and fall of Nazi Germany, as he witnessed six million fellow Jews disappear and die. He wrote I, thou, as a remedy to what ails us. And essentially what ails us is this false sense that we are separate. You and I are separate. You and God are separate. Me and God are separate. In our separateness, we relate to each other as I, it. But he says, when I confront a human being as my thou and speak the basic word, I, thou, to him, then he is no thing among things, nor does he consist of things. He is no longer he or she, a dot in the world grid of space and time, nor a condition to be experienced and described, a loose bundle of named qualities. Neighborless and seamless, he is thou and fills the firmament. I love that, the firmament. It reminds me of um, the interstitial space or of dark matter, the thing between the things. And he says, it's not as if there was nothing but he, but everything else lives in his light. I, thou, is seeing the light in everything and everyone else, including yourself. The second strand of belonging is to the earth itself. Lately, I've been really inspired by both Sally McFaig and Robin Wall Kimmerer. They have beautiful thinking around this sense of ecological and cosmological belonging. Wall Kimmerer, who wrote Braiding Sweetgrass, identifies as an indigenous American Indian, though she does not reserve indigenous just for Indians. She says that to become so means to grow the circle of healing to all of creation to all creatures. When we pay attention to the natural world and work to heal it, it also heals us. Paying attention is the doorway to gratitude, the doorway to wonder, the doorway to reciprocity. And to practice reciprocity is to engage in what we might call a gift economy, one that allows us to receive and then to pay it forward, to give to someone else. Reciprocity, like justice, has a foundation in love. I think about reciprocity also in in terms of financial reciprocity. Who among us has more than enough that we can reciprocally pay forward to those who don't? Sally McFaig is an ecological theologian, and she reinforces the notion that we live and move and have our being in God, as Bill talked about last week, that God is embodied in material existence. She echoes what so many cosmologists confirm, that the atoms in our bodies were formed in the bodies of the earliest stars, thus placing us among them. But she makes a different move. She doesn't just keep us out there in the cosmos and say, we're all part of this singular planet, thus a kind of plea towards why can't we just all get along. But she calls us right back to Earth and says that embodiment, that similarity, that self-similar piece of everything is exactly what should place us proximate to everything and everyone else. So she says, she, she really warns us not to get lost in these sort of utopian ideas where, where you know, we're kind of all holding hands singing Kumbaya, but she calls us to pay attention to a liberation model of theology and says, all bodies have equal value, which means that we have to think especially of the ones who are hungry, thirsty, 
overworked, unhoused, sick, mutilated, imprisoned, raped, murdered. We are all intimately linked, not just among the stars, but right here. And to deny this incites violence. When we believe ourselves separate, it's easier to commit acts of violence and injustice. We belong to life, and most radically, we belong to one another. We must come home, I think, to this way of thinking. Do you have anything you want to add? I think that the quality of reciprocity along with um, respect and taking responsibility for where we are and what our situation is are the three indispensable things that make relationships at every level of life work. Yeah. And I think that because of hanging out with you uh, and the stuff that I've learned from what you said and from books that you've taught me uh, to read. I just want to pause and say, I've taught you books? Yeah. You taught me some things that have been really, I mean, introducing me to Brian Swim, yeah. for example. It's been really important because what Brian Swim says that contrary to what I think I was taught or what I assumed about evolution is that the primary quality of evolution is cooperation. Communion. We, communion. Yeah. 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 And boy, that's what we don't have in our culture yeah. right now. Yeah, so it's, it's more like asking, and I think Sally McFaig does this really well. She says, how do our social systems need to mirror what already is? So we have this great cosmic belonging, wonderful, yay, woohoo. <laughs> but let's make our social systems mirror that. It's not, yeah, and so I think, again, it's, it's, you we're so often trying to fit the natural world into the human idea. This is the reason that I started with a quote today from Joan Chinister. We have separated spirituality and our living. Yeah. We've cut it off. We made it a separate thing that you go do this and that. And I think, you know, we said we were using Jesus and Buddha to help us navigate this time during the pandemic. And I want to do a piece in here sometime on uh, Jesus and Buddha themselves actually having a dialogue. I know they're separated by 500 so years. So you're going to play Jesus and I'll play Buddha? That's, I, I can write it out. Or either one. <laughs> you can play Jesus and I'll do Buddha. And I, I, the title of it is uh, this fantasy that I've created that Jesus and Buddha meet at the empty tomb mm. and have this talk about... Oh my gosh, let's do it. We're going to write a dialogue like that. That'll be the end of it. The end of this Sermon on the Mount, we'll write a dialogue where we pretend to be Jesus and Buddha. We'll I, come in I, full costume. I've already got part of it written. Okay, I need to grow a belly to be the Buddha, apparently. Well, we'll find a skinny Buddha. <laughs> but, but I think that the thing that, that Buddhism brings, and Jesus did too, but the problem was is that when the state co-opted the church, yes or the religious movement, then it lost so much. So it should be the opposite, right? Spirit should co-opt the state, the systems, right? Well, this, the... What I mean is spirit should lead Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I disagree with a lot that Paul wrote, and we'll talk about that sometime. But I think Paul was exactly right about what he called the principalities and the powers. Mm -hmm. That's the state. Mm -hmm. That's the system. Mm -hmm. And the system is what you're talking about that puts a man on death row for stealing garden shoes. Yeah. That's, that's a system gone wrong. It's a system gone wrong. Right. And, and it's so, there's so many bigger things we need to worry right. about. 
But these ideas of belonging to relate to what I brought up last week about our identity being more than just individual development. Are, it, it is inclusive of ecological and cosmological belonging, and it's a two-way permeable membrane. To, rec to render ourselves as a creature of everything else, we must also belong right here to one another. Empathy restores us both to each other and to our surroundings. And this next part, it's, I think we as creatures are pretty good at feeling empathy. But the next part is a bit stickier because it asks us to turn empathy into action. We need empathy and belonging to guide our personal decisions and our public systems, as we both just chatted about. So the question to wrestle is, what are you willing to give up? And it's a real question that I'm posing. I ask it of myself. I'm not saying only to you all, but what can I give up? Can we give up scarcity, for example? Trade in that for the belief that there's enough. Scarcity constricts. Abundance expands. Love and justice are expansive. And they can be freely given. They're not going to run out. Our resources might run out, but love and justice don't run out. They're not finite. I think a lot, for example, about restorative justice or restorative discipline in schools. In fact, I teach teachers how to do this, how to create environments where everyone feels safe and seen. But when used in the K through 12 classroom, restorative discipline teaches values and disrupts what has been called the cradle to prison pipeline that primarily affects black and brown boys. It's based on these premises, respect, Bill just mentioned it, relationship, responsibility, taking responsibility for what you've done and making repair and then reintegrating into the group. A lot of times people think that restorative justice doesn't, it's not consequential. But anyone who's ever studied NVC or any behavioral stuff will tell you there's a consequence for every action we do. Some of our consequences are negative and some of our consequences are positive. When we can learn to take responsibility for our behavior, then our, the natural consequences take over and there's more repair and one can be reintegrated into society or into a classroom. We're willing to restore cars, houses, furniture. Why not relationships? Why don't we give second chances or sometimes third and fourth chances, especially to kids as they're learning this stuff? In fact, during this part of the Jewish calendar year, which we mentioned earlier, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, are about seeking repair with those we have wronged and those who have wronged us. Jesus would have practiced this atonement, or better said, this at-one-ment. I think that is the, the whole principle of atonement, is, is, to, is to restore. Where spirit comes into social practice lies in who we vote for, who makes laws through a lens of empathy and restorative justice versus blame and punitive punishment. I also think a lot about redistributive wealth. There's a finite amount of money and any of us needs to really care for ourselves and our families quite comfortably. To be blunt, to those of us who aren't struggling, again, I place myself among them, who have more than enough, how much are you willing to let go of so that others may experience some sense of belonging in a social safety net? I'm convinced that if more of the world had access to basic resources like food and shelter and a sense of belonging, there would be less violence. There would be more 
justice. And I love that it also creates more of just us. I want to know how to do that graphic. Oh, man. You know, Holly, um, when we attended the Roar Conference where I met Jackie Lewis, Dr. Jackie Lewis, John Dominic Crossan was one of the speakers. Mm, I love him. And they had this closing ceremony, which is incredibly moving. I, I Actually, I, I think most of us were moved to tears mm. about it because it was about being at one with the earth, anointing a rock with oil, recognizing ourselves. It was, it was, it was a very moving thing. Mm. The speakers at the conference were given a chance to come to the stage and say goodbye. And John Dominic Crossan came to the mic. Have you ever seen him? Yeah, I, 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 there's so much I could say about him right now. I'm kind of trying to hold back. Okay. <laughs> he's a little guy. Yeah, he's wonderful. And an Irish guy, his, his biography is a long way from temporary. It's a wonderful book. But he, he was a... With a, his Irish accent. Irish. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. attracted, attracted into religious studies yeah. because of he was a priest mm -hmm. in Ireland, and he thought the priests were the most adventurous things because they got to go around the world and do this stuff. And he came to the edge of the stage and, and said something like this. He said, I used to wish people peace. I no longer do that. I wish you distributive justice. Mm. Peace will take care of itself. It was powerful. Because we don't live with distributive justice. We don't live with the kind of justice you have spent time talking about. We live with retributive justice. We get tripped up even by that first aspect of Stevenson's idea of justice, which is the assumption that everyone is better than the worst thing they have done. Right. We get tripped up by that. Right. So it's hard to keep moving forward when we cannot turn and look at one another. So somebody will say to the kind of material that Holly and I presented today it, that it isn't logical. And you're absolutely right. <laughs> it isn't. What Jesus taught was not logical. What Jesus taught was a system of faith, a way of being in an empowering community, of creating that community of empowerment. It's not blind faith. It's not stupid faith. But it's a way of love, and it's a way of forgiveness, and it's a way of inclusion. As I said before, it's a way of those four immeasurables, which you don't have to embrace any religion to practice. Love, compassion, joy, and equanimity, which gets to Holly's last point about being willing to let go, be, give up. Our religion is all about hanging on to and getting higher, not letting go. When logic dictates desperation, the righteous hope. Mm -hmm. When logic dictates alienation, the righteous seek inclusion. When logic dictates cynicism, the righteous love. When logic dictates oppression, the righteous find refuge in truth and gratitude and in each other. And this faith comes from what we talked about last week. That is, being embedded in sacred mystery and living with a faith that sacred mystery is embedded in us. We are who we are in God, no more, no less. And this faith fearlessly seeks for the embodiment of justice, mm. 
because it knows that no matter how it might seem, we are safe in God. This is not, of course, always easy for us to believe. Charles Beard was a famous American historian. You can look him up on the internet. His uh, fame goes up and down depending on how you think about American democracy and American capitalism. Uh, he was in favor of another worldview than the one that we live in. But Charles Beard would, was once asked <clears throat> if he could sum up in five minutes everything that he had learned in 50 years of teaching history. And he said he could do better than that. He could sum up everything he learned in four sentences. And the four sentences were, the bee that robs the flower also fertilizes it. When it's dark enough, you can see the stars. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad with power. The mills of the god grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. And those, who, and I would add this one, those who have prized the freedom to do their own thing have not kept their freedom long. This planet is letting us know that our behavior has consequences. Further, right now, this country, and we're not the only one, are dealing with the consequences of having a system where the poor and the marginalized work night and day to maintain a system that has ignored them, and they're trying not to be ignored anymore. Jesus used his power for the powerless, our system teaches us to see power as a way to accumulate for ourselves. Jesus sees power as a way to mitigate the burden of others. For, for Jesus, power does not rule in splendid isolation. Rather, power stands in the midst of the poor and the needy with the intention to listen and to serve. Just look at our current political system. Look at the upcoming election, and we are going to dare to talk more about that next week. To stay in power, the need to stay in power, is leading to behaviors that no parent tries to instill in their children. We want our children to play fair, to tell the truth, not to judge and denigrate others, to be faithful to the commitments they make, not to be bullies, not to manipulate others, not to be ruthless, to have empathy, not to skew the truth or put out disinformation. But that's the leadership of our country. This exercise of power doesn't keep us safe from our enemies that we see in our country. It creates enemies. It doesn't protect us from danger. It endangers us. If power is used to suppress any person's right to be, that person's ability to be who they are, that person's sacredness, it is an abuse of power. I want to read one more quote by Joan Chittister and then we'll be done. She says, Misuse of power curdles spirituality at its roots. When we are our own gods, it makes God very difficult to find elsewhere in life. A commitment to patriarchal power centers us in ourselves. It treats as nothing the two great commandments upon which Christianity is based. The love of God, which honors the right order of creation, and the love of the other, which works always and only for the other's fullness of life. The power that Jesus taught and leads us to 
if we follow him, is on the side of the poor, the oppressed, at the bottom of the pyramid that Holly drew, not at the top, where we practice valuing life more than power and where we use that power, the power that we have for those who have little. So the teaching is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice to be done. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I love the stuff you do. Thank <laughs> you. No matter where you go this week, no matter where you, what happens, remember this. You carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next Sunday. Mm -hmm. Bye.